Lord, thank you that we get to read and hear about this pivotal moment in your unfolding plan of redemption. And there's so much here, Lord, for us today. And I pray that you'd help us to get everything we need to get. We know, Lord, that we could return to this passage again and again throughout our lives, and there will be other things that are here that you want us to get. Today, Lord, help us, please, to get what we need to get. Holy Spirit, would you overcome the human weakness that is so present in me as a preacher and in each of us as we receive and listen to your word? And I pray, Lord, that 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 human weakness would not stop your truth from shining through your word into our hearts, showing us your glory, changing us to be like you, making us like your son, Jesus. Please, O Lord, do what only you can do now. Leave us not alone, please. Come and meet us here, O God, for the sake of your name among the nations. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. In May of 2011, a team of Navy SEALs in two helicopters dropped into a concrete compound in northern Pakistan on a mission to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. In an interview after the fact, one of the Navy SEALs revealed that every member of the team had written a goodbye letter to their families before they had crossed the ocean. None of them expected to come back. They didn't need someone to reassure them that it was all going to be fine, everything was going to work out okay, before they left. They knew there was a really high chance it wasn't going to be fine, and it wasn't going to work out okay. And they went anyways. Apparently, these Navy SEALs believed that they were involved in something more important than their safety. More important than them coming home alive. More important than their kids growing up with a dad. Many of them were fathers. And so they went. In today's passage, Jesus sends his 12 apostles out on their first mission. Similarly, he does not send them out with well wishes, reassuring them that everything is going to be fine. It's the opposite. He sends them out to do what he had been doing and to say what he had been saying, and that means that they are going to be treated the way that he had begun to be treated, which means not well. What they're doing is dangerous, and it's not going to be just fine. But Jesus sends them out anyways, and they go anyways, because what they're doing is more important than their safety, than their comfort, and than their ease. 
I hope you can already see that there's some pretty big lessons for us here. But let's not jump ahead of ourselves. We want to walk through the passage and hear what it has to say to us. And so we're going to begin by looking at the first 11 verses of our passage where we hear about the mission. There's three main sections to the message here. The mission, the opposition, the application. And we're going to start with the mission that Jesus sends them on. And when we look at the mission, there's three aspects of the mission that we're going to consider. First is where. Where Jesus sent them to focus on. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, came first in the plan of redemption. This is a pattern we see elsewhere. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in the book of Romans. It's not as if God didn't plan to reach the Samaritans and the Jews. Rather, it's that because of his promises in history, the, the, the Jewish people had, had priority. In fact, it's interesting that he had to tell his disciples, don't go to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Apparently, it wasn't obvious to them that they should only go to the Jews. Jesus had to tell them, don't go. They knew at this point this was a global message. But at this stage in the mission, Israel got the priority. So that's where, or perhaps who. Next, we see what. Here's what they were to do, verses 7 to 8. We touched on this last week. Jesus said, verse 7, and, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound familiar? Well, sure it does. That's what John the Baptist preached, and that's what Jesus preached. And now the 12 are to preach it. And what are they supposed to do? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Does that sound familiar? Sure it does. That's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus has now given them authority to do, as again we considered last week. So once again, Jesus has multiplied his ministry by a factor of 12, by giving this authority to these 12, these, notice it's specific, these 12 Jesus sent out, verse 5, we know their names, and he sent them out now to do what he had been doing and to say what he had been saying. Next, let's consider how they were to complete this mission. And, and there's a few notes here we want to we uh, note here. Primarily what it has to do with was trusting God to provide for them. If you were being sent out uh, on, a, on a big trip, one of the first things you'll think about is provisions. If you're going on a missions trip, one of the first things you think about is raising support. If you are a full-time missionary, that's, that's, that's an, even, an even greater deal. And what Jesus tells the 12 is that they're to trust for God to provide for them instead of providing for themselves. Look at how verse 8 uh, picks up on this. You received without paying, give without pay. I mean, they didn't pay Jesus so that they could have the authority to do this. They, were, they received this as a gift. And so they're supposed to pass it on as a gift. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Not the gold's really good stuff. Copper was, you know, Midland and or sorry, silver was Midland and copper was, you know, the cheap stuff. Jesus says none of all three. No bag for your journey. Don't even take a backpack or don't go get a backpack. Or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. Jesus was teaching them to depend on him, 
to depend on their father to provide for them in a really dramatic way. They weren't to do the normal thing of, of getting some supplies together before going on a trip. And probably the best way of understanding the language here is to note that word acquire, which points to not so much that they weren't supposed to have these things, but that they weren't supposed to go get more. Okay, acquires at the beginning of verse 9. So it's not so much that if they had sandals, they had to take them off and go barefoot. But rather the idea was, don't go get an extra pair of sandals. You know, don't go get more of this stuff. Don't, don't use this trip as a means or an excuse to accumulate more things for yourself. Go with what you had, and just like Israel in the wilderness, trust God to provide for you. It's interesting, verse 10 finishes up, don't, don't get this stuff for, for yourself because, how does verse 10 finishes up? The laborer deserves his food. Interestingly, it's, it's quoted by the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Timothy 5. God was going to provide for them They were his laborers. They were going to get their food. And how is God going to provide for them? He's going to provide for them through people. And that's the big idea in verse 11 on down. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So they're to find someone who would receive their message and stay there and and let that person show hospitality to them. Just like the prophets of old often lived in rooms that, in houses owned by other people and they they receive hospitality, they receive food, so they were to do that. And, and they were to stay put. So notice they weren't supposed to shop around and find the best, the best place to stay. When I was a kid, my family traveled around and sang a lot of places, and we stayed in a lot of people's homes. And it was always a thing where, you know, we really, it was really nice to stay in the people with the really nice homes. And maybe the people who didn't have quite as nice homes or quite as nice food, when you found out you were staying there for a weekend, you always felt a little wistful. And, and uh, Jesus is saying, don't, don't have that kind of attitude. Don't, don't go shopping around for the best places. Stay where you're invited and be content. And in turn, the disciples were to greet that house with a blessing, like we see in verse 13. And when we hear the word house here, uh, we shouldn't so much think like the bricks and the roof, but more the household, the people who lived there. That's, that's a, a way that that word can be taken and makes sense in this context. And they were to give that house a blessing of peace. In Luke's version, we hear actually the words that they were to say, May peace be on this house. And, and it's a blessing of peace. They were agents of God's peace mission, And when they stayed in the house, they were to to greet that house and bless that house with the blessing of peace. Now, right here is where our passage makes a turn. A pretty significant turn that we're going to be camping out on for basically the rest of the morning. Because halfway through verse 13, Jesus begins to tip his hand and let his disciples know that not everybody's going to be thrilled with what they have to say. Not everyone's going to be thrilled with what they're going to be doing. I want you to think about how startling this might have been. You have been chosen by Israel's Messiah to go proclaim that the reign of God is breaking into this world, right? That's the meaning of the kingdom of God is at hand. He's given you authority to talk to demons and the demons are going to listen to you the first time. He's given you the authority to put your hand on dead people and bring them back to life. 
I mean, come on. This is as close to being a real-life superhero as anyone is ever going to get. Talk about power. And wouldn't they expect that they're going to go into towns full of sick people and that everyone's going to say, yes, come on in. Cheering crowds lined up to listen to them. Not so fast. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Take back your greeting and move on, in other words. And then verse 14, even more clear. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, what? People might not receive us? People might not listen to our words? Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Whole towns might not listen to them. And they were to shake the dust off their feet. So that's when Jesus talks about a house being worthy or not worthy, this is what he's getting at. It's whether they listen to the disciples or not. And some houses will reject them. Some towns will reject them. And so they should shake the dust from their feet. This is, this is not a new idea. In Jesus' day, some of the Jews, when they would travel through Gentile territory, when they would get out of Gentile territory, just about to get back into Jewish territory, they would shake the dust out of their sandals. It was a, it was a sign of contempt. Basically, like, I want, I'm leaving you guys behind, and I don't even want the dust of your streets coming home with me. Like, Stay there. Even let your dirt stay there. And Jesus is telling his disciples to treat fellow Jews that way if they will not listen to their message. Once again, we see that salvation and judgment is not a matter of your ethnicity, but of whether you listen to Jesus and his disciples or not. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Mind-blowing idea that a Jewish town could be in worse shape on the day of judgment than pagan, terrible Sodom and Gomorrah. But once again, we're seeing that eternal destinies hinge on response to Jesus. I'm getting the privilege of doing Blanche's funeral on Saturday, and she had written down what she wanted preached at her funeral. You must choose Christ, eternal life or eternal death. That's what she wrote. She got it. She understood it. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples to proclaim. But what we've seen here is that Jesus is preparing his disciples that not everyone's going to want to hear this message being proclaimed. And the second major part of our passage today from verses 16 to 25 show Jesus going into a fair amount of detail preparing his disciples for the persecution and the opposition and the hard times that they're going to face. This is not going to be a cakewalk. He begins in verse 16. In case, they, in case they were curious, in case they, you know, maybe some of them were maybe raising their hands like, uh, this sounds a little dangerous. Well, what does he say? Behold, I am sending you out 
as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm not sure how much I would have liked that if I was one of the disciples. I might have, be, I might have preferred to be sent out as a stallion in the midst of donkeys or a peacock in the midst of pigeons. You know, we're kind of animal in a crowd where everyone looks and goes, ah, look, that, that's great. Let's listen to him. We should pay attention to that guy. But no, they're going out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, it, it, these people are used to sh- shepherding. You know that a wolf in the midst of your sheep is a big problem. And it's, th- that's not even going to be that. They're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves. If a wolf in a, pack of sh- in a flock of sheep is, a, is a, a big deal, how much worse is being a sheep in the midst of a pack of wolves? And that's what they are. That's how vulnerable and dangerous this is. So what do you do when you're sheep in the midst of a pack of wolves? Well, from verse 16 down to verse 25, Jesus tells them how they're to deal with this danger. And we're going to consider these words under five headings. The first has to do with wisdom and innocence. Behold, verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So you see there, wisdom and innocence. Sheep are vulnerable. They have no natural defenses. Similarly with doves, doves are not birds of prey. They don't hunt other birds. They don't have sharp beaks for killing other animals. Doves are innocent. They don't go hunting. And they're to be like that. At the same time, they're not supposed to be stupid about this. Their innocence is to be met with wisdom. And that's where Jesus tells them to be wise as serpents. Shrewd as snakes is the great language of the King James Version that has stuck with us. They're they're not to be clueless and march straight into the open jaws of a wolf. They have a mission to fulfill, and so they need to be wise about the persecution that they're going to face. And so, as verse 17 says, beware of men. They need to be careful of who they're going to trust. And, And why is that? Why do they need to beware of men? Well, Verse 17 says, what are men going to do? They'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. It's interesting to hear these words about Gentiles, which kind of help tip us off that Jesus' instructions here are looking beyond just this first commission. Jesus' instructions here... Because he told them, don't go to the Gentiles. Now he's talking about the Gentiles. And so these instructions Jesus is giving now are describing the whole mission of the church in this whole age, not just this first trip that the 12 took. And he's saying that's going to be hard. You're going to be getting in trouble with the authorities all the time. This is starting to happen to us in Canada, right? And it's normal. It's not strange. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. How many times did he get dragged before kings and governors? Happened all the time. Christians get in trouble with the government because they follow King Jesus. That's just the way it goes. 
And in spite of this, he says, don't be anxious. So now we're moving into our second heading, anxiety and provision. When they deliver you over, not if, but when, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father speaking through you. You will be delivered over, count on it, but when it happens, don't be anxious. Now, this is really interesting. (laughs) If you knew that you were going to be hauled before the government for your testimony to Jesus, what might you be anxious about? I think it'd be very easy to be thinking about my safety, my physical provision. Am I going to go to jail or not? Are they going to hurt me in jail? Am I, my family going to be okay? That's not what Jesus assumes they're worried about. What does Jesus assume they're going to be anxious about? It's what they're going to say. How they're going to best bear witness to Jesus in that spot. He assumes that they're thinking about him. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Don't worry about those government lawyers tripping you up because God is going to provide for them by giving them the words to say. Don't we see that all throughout the book of Acts? You want a great example? Go to Acts chapter 4 where Peter, an uneducated fisherman, gets hauled before the Sanhedrin and he gives a defense that's just like, where did that come from, Peter? Well, we know where it came from. And we actually read that the Sanhedrin, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. God kept this promise to his apostles time and again. And there's some question here because we know that the apostles were promised inspiration from the Holy Spirit in some pretty specific ways. There's some question about how much of this applies to all of God's people throughout all time. And it, can, we, can we count on uh, the Holy Spirit inspiring us in exactly the same way? And I, I think there's some different ways we could answer that question. But th- the idea that God will help us in that spot, there's surely no question about that. There's surely no question about God giving us wisdom, God helping us know what to say. And God's people have experienced that time and time again. Now, the third heading here is perseverance and salvation. Things are going to get hard. 20, verse 21 to 22, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Family bonds are the closest bonds in the world, and yet those bonds are going to come under attack as people choose loyalty to Jesus and hatred for Jesus. Do you know this is happening all over the world today? It's happening in the Muslim world, where fathers are literally murdering their children. Wives are literally putting broken glass in their husbands' meals to kill them because they've converted to Christianity. Here in Canada, children are turning in their parents to the authorities because they won't go along with the gender change insanity. This is real. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, says Jesus in verse 22. Hated by all, including your family. 
And this strong persecution is going to call for perseverance. And so as verse 22 finishes up, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Following Jesus is going to require endurance all the way to the end. If you run a race but you drop out five feet before the finish line, you don't, you don't finish the race, do you? Following Jesus is going to require perseverance all the way to the end. And those who endure this persecution all the way to the end are those who will be saved. Now, there's a couple of things we need to see here. First, this salvation Jesus is talking about is not talking about the forgiveness that we receive when we place our faith in him. Not talking about being justified. Okay, we get that by faith in Jesus. We don't, but rather he's talking about the final rescue, the final eternal life that's going to be given to us when he comes to rescue his saints like we read about elsewhere in scripture. And what he's saying here is that perseverance is a mark of genuine discipleship. Disciples of Jesus persevere and thus receive the final rescue, the final salvation that they've been promised. The next point here has to do with fleeing and coming. This is the fifth and final piece of instruction here. Sorry, this is fourth. Fourth and final. And this one's the most interesting. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Okay, that's a part of what it means to be wise as serpents. If they're persecuting you, don't just sit still. Get a move on. We see that again in the book of Acts. The Christians, especially the Apostle Paul, when they would get persecuted, they'd move on. They'd move on. They'd move on. This is actually one of the reasons that the gospel spread so fast was because they were persecuted, and so they scattered. And that's what they're to do. Don't just sit there and and take it if you can. If you can escape, move on and bring the gospel with you. So, see, many times... People don't want to have their circumstances disrupted. They don't want to lose their homes or their nice, comfortable lives. So when they start coming under pressure for the gospel, they go soft on the message. They, 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 they compromise so that they can have a comfortable life. Jesus assumes it's okay to want to avoid persecution, but not by going soft on the message, but rather being willing to pack up and move on so that you can continue to bear witness to Jesus which again we see in the book of Acts all over the place. Do this, and now we really come back to these 12 and their mission. Flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is one of those passages that makes you scratch your head and say, what? And we need to take a moment. We need to kind of press pause on the flow of the message and just really try to understand this phrase because this is one of those ones that, that people who hate the Bible will throw at you and say, see, Jesus assumed he was going to come back before the disciples were finished this mission. Where is he? So he was wrong. Okay, so we got to understand this. So please hear. We're pressing pause on the flow of the message. We want to understand this phrase and then we're going get to back, get back into the flow of the message. When we hear these words about the Son of Man coming, 
What do we think about right away? Coming where? Back to earth. What I want to suggest, that's not the best way to think about these words. First of all, in the book of Matthew so far, have we heard anything about Jesus leaving? Not yet. I mean, we hear about that later. Like, believe me, he he leaves and comes again. But there's been no clue in Matthew so far about him leaving. So when we hear about the Son of Man coming, we've got to be careful that we don't fill in an idea that's not there yet. The bigger reason is that in the Bible, this idea of the Son of Man coming is an established idea. If we go to the place in Daniel where the language of the Son of Man is first introduced, what do we see? Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, this is where the Son of Man language comes from. The Son of Man comes, but not to earth. Where is he coming to? He's coming to the throne of the Father to receive an eternal kingdom, and all peoples are going to worship him. So if you were a Jewish reader of Scripture reading Matthew for the first time, when you hear about the Son of Man coming, and by the way, the word come, there's, there's multiple words in Greek for come, but this word here is the same from the Greek Old Testament, the one Jesus is using here, Daniel 7, Matthew 10, same word. You're going you're gonna to probably fill in the blank that this is not talking about him coming to earth because you don't know that he's going to leave yet. This is about him coming to the Father to receive an eternal kingdom. So it's interesting, halfway through Matthew 24, we start to hear about his return to earth, his coming to earth, but in the original language, it's a totally different word. And I look forward to getting to Matthew 24 with you in a few years. If you want to chat about it first, let's go for coffee and talk about it. So if we understand that at this point, when Jesus speaks about the coming of the Son of Man, he's talking about his coming to the Father to receive an eternal kingdom, well, all of a sudden, some other passages in Matthew just make sense. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some people say, well, see, Jesus is wrong. No, no, he's not talking about his coming to earth. He's talking about coming to the Father. And of course they were going to see that happen in their lifetime. At his trial before the high priest, Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, which makes sense if we understand this is not his second coming, but his coming to the Father to receive the authority in the kingdom on the basis of his death and resurrection. So with all that in mind, think about Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, And Jesus came and said to them, okay, so think about, think about what he's promised. Then he dies, rises again, and now hear what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Those are Daniel 7 words. He has come to the Father, right? Here, that's what he's saying. I've, I, by dying and rising again, I've now come to the Father and received this kingdom. All authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. I've received that eternal kingdom. It's happened. And now, remember how Daniel said what was, what was a part of this kingdom? That all peoples should serve him. In Greek, panta ta ethne, all peoples. And what does Jesus say now? Go make disciples of panta ta ethne, of all peoples. Same words from Daniel 7. Go make disciples now so that all peoples might serve me. Do you see the Great Commission is just Daniel 7 realized in history. So Jesus says, I'm going to come to the Father. I'm going to come to the Father. He dies and rises again. Then he says, I've received the kingdom. Go make disciples of all nations. Now we can understand Matthew 10. Because Jesus is saying, you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, before that happens, and before the mission opens up to the Gentiles. Now, the mission is focused on Israel, and there's urgency. You don't have a lot of time. So go. Go from when they persecute you, move on to the next town. Go, go, go. Get the gospel out to the Jews, because you won't have gone through all those cities before the Son of Man comes. In other words, before I die, rise again, receive the kingdom, and send you to the nations. And it's very interesting, Daniel 7 said his kingdom was everlasting and would never be removed, and Jesus said, what? I'm with you to the end of the age. It's all there. So coming back to Matthew 10, there's the drama. There's urgency here. Go, because his death and his resurrection is coming soon. The mission to the Gentiles is coming soon. So go, get the gospel to the cities of Israel. Now, please hear in all of this, if any of you are confused about this, I am not saying that Jesus is not coming again to earth. I'm saying the opposite of that. Of course he's coming again to earth. But that's just not what these verses are talking about. Now, your head might be spinning right now, because that might be a lot of big ideas, especially if you're in Sunday school. There's a lot of big ideas today. Uh, The disciples' heads were probably spinning too. It's, It's not bad to have your head spin. Jesus made people's heads spin. Their heads were probably spinning for different reasons, though. They probably weren't trying to sort out the differences between Jesus coming to the Father and Jesus coming to earth. They were probably just struggling with that. They were, they were going out as apostles of the Messiah, and people are going to hate them. That, that's not what we expected. That, that's not, that wasn't a part of the agreement, we thought. Why all the hate? And so Jesus finishes up. This is our fifth point. Verse 24, 25. A disciple's not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Who's the master? Who's the teacher? It's Jesus. Who's the disciple? Who's the servant? It's us. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So they've been treating Jesus. They've started to treat him pretty poorly. We've heard the Pharisees say he casts out demons by the prince of demons. 
Now, apparently they're saying he is a demon. He is Satan. And Jesus says, not just that we're going to get it as bad as him, but we're going to get it worse than him. How much more those of his household? And we need to be content with this. We need to be content to be mistreated because Jesus was mistreated. What makes us think that we should get it any easier than Jesus? That's what he's asking here. And Jesus' disciples need to be content with this. They need to be content to be mistreated with Jesus because they know where all this is headed. They know that Jesus is going to receive all authority in heaven and on earth. They know that there's a judgment day coming, that those nations, those cities that reject them, that they're going to get it literally on the day of judgment. So they don't need to get all hot and bothered and start campaigns and petitions. And It's okay. Jesus is going to settle the score. They can put up with the world's hatred and get in line behind their Messiah. So there's the mission and the opposition. Finally, and thirdly, the application. What is this passage saying to us? We have to ask that question because not everything in this passage is for us in the same way. Some parts of this passage were for the 12 on this trip. For example, go only to the Jews, not to the Samaritans or Gentiles. We know that changed. Uh, don't take silver or gold or, 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 or a staff or sandals. Don't bring a bag. Well, that changed. In Luke twenty two thirty six. Jesus actually told them directly, go get a bag. If you don't have a sword, go, go get one. And... And so we know that this wasn't a permanent vow of poverty. Francis of Assisi misunderstood this passage, right? He thought we should do this all the time. He, he, he didn't understand it. This was temporary. Uh, we know that not all Christians have been given this authority over, over diseases and demons the way that the 12 apostles did. Uh, we know that this idea of going into a town and finding a person of peace even though some contemporary missiologists are all into that, that's not a pattern we see all throughout the Bible. The the apostles didn't follow that pattern in the book of Acts. So not all of this is for all of us. Some of this was just for the 12. Now certainly we can learn from it. God provided for them. God took care of them. Look at that. But what is the big connection point? What is is most similar between them and us? is that following Jesus is going to be really hard. Really, really hard. And we should expect to be persecuted. We know this is true because the rest of the New Testament tells us. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Philippians 1, 29 to 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, so believing in Jesus was granted to you, but not only that, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, this is Paul talking, and now here that I still have. It's been, if you believe in Jesus, that's been given to you, and suffering for Jesus has been given to you. 
Don't we need to hear that message in Canada where it's getting tougher and tougher for us to be faithful to Jesus? Isn't it interesting? You've heard me say this before. As soon as the government puts any pressure on us here in Canada, we all say, oh, Jesus must be coming back tomorrow. It's the end of the world. Now, he might be coming back tomorrow, but Christians in other parts of the world have been dealing with way worse pressure from their government for 2,000 years. This is normal. This is what Christians deal with. Where did we get the idea that following Jesus is supposed to be easy? I mean that. Where did it come from? It didn't come from the Bible. It's not from here. And have you ever wondered how much damage this idea that following Jesus should be easy, how much damage has that done to us? Is this why so many churchgoers act like spoiled kids who think the church is there to serve them and throw temper tantrums whenever they don't get their own way? Is this why so many Christians don't talk about Jesus to anyone else because they think it's really important that they not make people dislike them? It's really important for people to like us. Oh, if, if I tell them about Jesus, it might make things awkward, and that, that's off the table, even though Jesus said, expect the hatred of the world. Is this why so few Christians ever consider serving the Lord in another country, actually going as missionaries, because that would be hard and serving Jesus is supposed to be easy and comfortable? Is this why when some missionaries do make it to other countries, so many North American missionaries play games with the gospel, tinkering with the message of Jesus to try to make it easier for local people to come to Jesus? because we bring this evil idea with us that following Jesus is supposed to be comfortable. The question for us this morning, are we willing for hardship and opposition and persecution as we follow Jesus? Are we willing? I have some bad news for you. If your answer is no, then you can't be a Christian. That's what Jesus said. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We're looking at this in two weeks. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. We're all the Navy SEALs writing writing our goodbye letters. That's us. Lay down your life, says Jesus, and follow me. Now, that doesn't mean this isn't scary. You might be thinking this morning, I'm terrified. And that's what next week is about, because that's where Jesus goes right away, is the teaching on fear, who not to fear, and who to fear. So that's coming. There's some good comfort that's coming. But the big question today, are we willing for the hatred of the world? Do we really believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Are we willing to take up our crosses and lose our lives because we really believe that there's no true life apart from Jesus? That's a question for us to sit on and chew on and pray on. And I want to end here by encouraging you with one specific way to apply this this morning. Remember last week we talked about how God uses prayer to shape our hearts? I want to encourage you to prepare your own heart to suffer for Jesus by praying for those who are suffering for Jesus. Last week was International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians, and we kind of missed that. 
Christians all around the world today are facing incredible persecution for following Jesus. And the little bit of pressure we're getting in Canada is just bringing us in line with that majority. And there's some great organizations like Voice of the Martyrs that help us pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We've been told to do that. We've been told to do that in Hebrews 13.3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. On your handout there, there's a link where you can go to Voice of the Martyrs Canada and sign up for a weekly email that'll help you pray for persecuted brothers and sisters. Do you think that that would be an important thing to do? And as you do that, that that might shape your own heart to say, Lord, I'll do this for you. I'm willing for whatever the cost. May the Lord make us willing messengers and willing sufferers for the sake of his name among the nations. Father, Father, would you help us to heed the call? Would you help us to be content to suffer hatred and persecution for the sake of Jesus? Would you help us, Lord, to be content to be sheep in the midst of wolves? Because we know that in you, Lord Jesus, is life. There is no life apart from you. And there is an eternity coming that is going to turn upside, uh, right side up everything that's upside down in this world. Jesus, would you help us to lay our lives at your feet, knowing that as we lose our lives, there we shall find them. We would rather die for you than live apart from you, Jesus. Receive our worship. Receive these living sacrifices, I pray. Amen.